Welcome to Conversations on Retail. My name is Matt Pfeiffer. It's a beautiful day in Northwest Arkansas. We're so excited to have Mike Grain here with us this morning to continue his on-shelf availability series. Today, his guest is Gina Morgan, Vice President of Standards for GS1. And their conversation today is to talk about GS1 and Sunrise 2027. Just a couple of things in the way of housekeeping before we get started. Very, very briefly, I want to thank the University of Arkansas has been recognized uh, for the second year in a row as the number one undergraduate supply chain program in North America. And you can learn more about that program. Also want to recognize our sponsors, BrainCorp, uh, Barcoding, uh, Fusion, SES Megatag, and, and Willie out that just added this week. We're so grateful to our sponsors for making this series possible. In case you missed it, Mike has put up a tremendous body of work, uh, and you can check out all of his past conversations on our YouTube channel, which is at youtube.com forward slash at conversations on retail. Uh, we worked with Mike a couple of months ago to launch a new gathering place and resource center for on-shelf availability, and we won't linger there long, but you can check out onshelfavailability.com for some great resources. Lastly, I would just say that this is intended to be a conversation and not a presentation. We would love for you that are joining us live to participate, and you can do that simply by clicking on the Q&A button in Zoom and submitting your questions and comments in writing. Mike loves for me to mention that uh, it's critically important that we comply with all federal antitrust laws. So we're not going to talk about anything related to pricing, margins, discounts, suppliers, timing of price changes, marketing, product plans, anything that would be competitively sensitive. Last thing is the opinions of Mike and his guests are their own and not necessarily those of conversations on retail. So before acting on their opinions and recommendations, make sure that they are suitable for your own circumstances. Mike, with that, finally, I will turn it over to you. Thank you so much for your patience and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Um, so a couple things. First off, that uh, don't share uh, any pricing, any any conflict of interest or anything that looks like an antitrust violation. I got to be honest with you, I've used that line for 25, 30 years now, every time I do one of these conversations, and I take it shamelessly, steal, stole it from GS1. So, Gina, uh, I know you, uh, you've you had a role in saying that a few times, but I believe it's so powerful that in today's world, we don't uh, we do not do anything that looks like a, an antitrust violation. Um, I did my heart. <laughs> I know you can. I know you can. I know you can. Oh, exactly. Um, so just to just to reiterate, um, we've got Gina and I who are going to be basically having a series of conversations. It's almost like you've joined us at the coffee shop at the table. So the folks who are on the line are going to be able to hear that. Uh, you don't have the ability to actually talk during this. But if you have any questions or any comments that you'd like to make, uh, feel feel free to use that question and answer button at the bottom of the Zoom. Uh, and as we get through this, we we will certainly uh, ask those questions. That's what, that way we can ask Gina questions that she isn't prepared for, which I love. <laughs> so, Gina, let me start. Let me start out with a real basic question. Tell us a little bit about Gina Morgan. You've been in the industry a long time. Who is Gina Morgan? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you for asking, Mike. I've been in the industry a long time, right next to you, sir. So I'm. it's my pleasure to be here with you. Um, I am Gina Morgan. I have been in the GS1 world of standards and technology for almost going on 25 years now, which is super scary and weird for me. But um, And I previously was actually a consultant for GS1 US as well as GS1 Global Office and uh, facilitated the development of a lot of um, of the different standards and technologies and services that you see as part of our solutions now today, including the global data synchronization network, 
Um, uh, we had a, an organization, Mike, called EPC Global, which was really the kickstart of RFID technology when MIT said we need supply chain use for this technology and help to uh, develop both the protocol standards for that as well the the data sharing standards for that, uh, which we might get into a little bit today. So I have in various capacities been around industry uh, driving requirements for those types of solutions. And now I am the vice president of standards. I went in-house um, to help lead the organization through the next generation of leaders uh, in this space. So uh, I'm happy to be here. I am also from Atlanta, Georgia. It is a beautiful sunny day. You could see that light coming in here as well. Originally from my dear state of Louisiana, where I uh, am an avid sports fan, as one might imagine. Is it is it Louisiana or is it Louisiana? I've heard it both I mean, ways. Which way is it? For people from Louisiana, it's Louisiana. Is it really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I've always wanted to know that. The it's one kind of that like... Nobody from Atlanta says hot Atlanta, Mike. They just it's, it's Atlanta. <laughs> well, you know, the, I, I'm from Arkansas, and you know, people are not from Arkansas. You are from Arkansas? Is that where Ar- you're? Exactly. Although we are not yeah. from Arkansas, we're from Arkansas. So, <laughs> so way before GS one, you actually started in retail, which is interesting because now you're setting standards for retail. I did a little bit of snooping on your LinkedIn profile. There was a company called Uptons. Yeah. Tell us about Uptons and how did that help shape the work that you are doing now? The fact that you had actually worked in retail before. Well, it actually, so Uptons was my second um, real job in retail. My first one was uh, a department store and it was a department store in Atlanta. Um, But my first job was with Yonkers department stores. And Mm. I started out of college. Um, Somewhat out of college after I took a little break, um, <laughs> but it was my first retail. That's a whole nother po- That's exactly. a whole nother podcast. <laughs> uh, that was my first real job, I should say, um, as a buyer for Yonkers Department Stores in Des Moines, Iowa. Now imagine John. Uh, I mean Mike moving from New Orleans, Louisiana to Des Moines, Iowa. A little bit of a shocker there. Um, but that was my first job. I was a dress buyer. I was a merchant. Uh, studied to be a merchant at LSU. That was all I ever wanted to do was be an apparel buyer. And the reason is I had grown up around retail at a, a department store called Gotchas in, um, in Louisiana. And uh, my dad actually was the CIO at Gotchas. And I used to play with punch cards just <laughs> as my childhood. <laughs> He'd bring those punch cards home and we would play office with them. But anyway, started my career up at Yonkers. And uh, my father actually, you can call me a Nepo kid if you like, but my father was the CIO at Yonkers. I was uh, originally going to go to work in a store in Birmingham, Alabama, and my dad was like, "Hey, uh, you might like it up here next with your with uh, your mom and I." <laughs> Turned out, Mike, he was uh, the CIO there, leading a huge retail convert systems conversion, mm. and uh, and so I, I don't want to say I was a mole, but I was a good person to say, this is what the merchants need. This is what the merchants want. This is, you know, little feeding some stuff into the technology department, which he was doing this huge conversion. That is really how my my passion moved from being a dress buyer into, wow, I really like this technology stuff and I like understanding the business requirements. Nice. And then being that kind of man in the middle between technology and the business. And so that's kind of the role I play today. At uh, GS1, oddly enough, it, I don't know that I planned it that linear, you know, in a linear fashion, but here I am. Love it. 
Love that story. All right, we have our first question, and you'll laugh, <laughs> which is how do you pronounce, I'm going to say New Orleans. How do you say it? Since you are a native of that, you've been part of that. How do you say it? New Orleans. Okay. You got that, Eric? We're good. Not We're New Orleans. No, not New Orleans. New Orleans. So it's two words, right? It's two words. Two words. New Orleans. All right. Well, let me tell you, uh, let me tell you a really brief story. I wasn't going to do this, but I, I've got to love the fact that I've had a chance in my 40 year career to work with GS1. And one of my favorite projects was when I was still with Procter and Gamble working with Walmart, Walmart had a purchasing system that the PO had intelligence in it. And Jenny, you can already roll the eyes in the back of your head. So the first two digits were the DC number. Then there was the department number, which is two digits. Well, the DC number was two digits and they were about to roll out DC number 100, right? Yeah. So a Y2K problem. I won't tell you through all that. Sometime we'll tell you this story, but at the end of the day, what they wanted to do is they were gonna move to a non-intelligent purchase order. And then they wanted all of their suppliers to code order number, DC number, et cetera, in all the shipping papers yeah. to the EDI platform. And where I was at PNG, I go, we can do that. That'll cost a lot of money. And we just continue to get our stuff unloaded. There's got to be a better way. And I won't tell you all the backstory for that. But that was the day where they said, well, we don't have another option. When the guard shack looks at the paperwork, they go, oh, that goes to, D- that goes to door number seven. Yeah. And we started looking with the old uh, GS1 folks. This is probably previous to you. And they go, well, we've got this thing called the global location number that might be able to be used so you don't have to ask all your suppliers to code proprietary stuff in for Walmart. Best story that GS1 came to the rescue. You guys have always been always just a little bit in front of the industry helping to set standards for things that are happening, which is incredible. So that's one example, but this focus of this group is actually focused on on-shelf availability. So I'd be really interested from your perspective, you know, how, how do you see that GS1 has been actively involved working with retailers and CPGs to really help drive supply chain and, and on-shelf availability? Sure. Well, for, for those of you who may not be, uh, who are with us today, who may not be GS1 aficionados, I mean, we started, our origin story is the UPC code and the whole purpose of that um, that code was to improve efficiency at checkout. Um, and we had our first scan. We'll celebrate that 50th anniversary of the first scan of the barcode next year. Um, but that unique identification of a product also then springboarded into a slew of different use cases that helped manage inventory better. As soon as you're a- managing your inventory better, you have better on-shelf availability. Um, and so for some time, that was the solution to that. And then as we have grown and things have changed and supply chains have become more complex, it's really about what are the technologies that can do that better, do that faster, less um, friction and whatnot. And so as I mentioned in my in my overview of who I am, um, we were really instrumental in developing standards for RFID um, that can help you. It's not just about although it's a primary purpose of scanning without um, without a human intervention. What RFID brought to the table is this idea of um, unique, but granular uniqueness to identification of a product. So now you can truly see um, this, 
uh, visibility to such a fine grain level that your on-shelf availability is uh, essential. So we developed the standards for that. We always go back, Mike, to our foundation of regardless of data carrier, you have to have global unique identification of what it is that you are selling, what it is that you are stocking, um, all of those things. So that's really foundational to, to all of it. And we consistently look around the corner to say, what's the, what, what, um, technologies are around the corner and how does that intersect with standards and leverage what people have invested in already today, right. um, to ensure that we can just keep improving on shelf availability. So you mentioned pun- punch cards. I'm going to take you way back. Here's an item right there. Uh-huh. Before there was a UPC code at a discount store at a grocery store, et cetera. How did people actually ring up these items? Exactly. They would, look for, <laughs> they would look for a price sticker on the product and they wouldn't care how what it was. It would say it's $4.99 and that's how they do it. You guys introduced the UPC, which fundamentally changed basically the entire supply chain, on-shelf availability, point-of-sale systems, et cetera, which allows you to be able to basically scan a barcode, which said that's this blue cup and that blue cup in our system costs $4.99. That's what I'm going to ring up on the register. Ironically enough, you're celebrating the 50 year of the barcode. At the same point in time, you're implementing solutions to eliminate that. So on this UPC, this UPC, I scan it and it says I have 10 in the store. Yep. Unpack for us the idea of serialization, because I think people use that word and they don't understand what it means. Today, it's a UPC and it's a quantity of 10. What does it mean in the future when you say you have a serialized item? So this cup is now serialized. What does that mean? Great question. Um, and, and RFID actually kind of highlighted the value of serialization because with RFID technology, you're not, there's no human that's going scan, scan, yep. scan, which is, you know, just a human count of, let's say you have 10. Yep. With RFID, it's just a radio wave out there. So unless you serialize, you don't know if you saw one thing 10 times or you saw 10 distinct things unless you serialize. That's the value of serialization. Now I know this has this is a very specific instance of yep. this hand sanitizer, which yep. is different or identified differently from the next instance of this. And so you can get really fine grain visibility into your into what's happening in your store and beyond on-shelf availability, starting to capture serialized data at point of sale. You can tie that to a, a customer. You could tie that to an incident, whether it be a recall uh, or whatnot, expired product in the future to have that communication. You can do returns fraud. You can do loss prevention. There's a number of different things that when you tie it to this instance that is walking out the door right now provides you that difference. It, we to get walking on it like that. Just you have a class level and you have an instance level of something, and the instance level is that serialized, very distinct instance of the thing. Yeah. And when you look at stuff like that, it's a game changer because your visibility just because so fine grained. It may be helpful for the audience if they're new to this thing. Here's the example that I use. If I have two Ford F-150 pickup trucks sitting in a parking lot right next to each other, they're the same color, the same year, the same options, they're all identical. What separates one from the other one is not the license plate, because you could swap license plate, is the VIN number of that truck. 
Right? That's correct. They or- have a different VIN number. Exactly. Exactly. So in this case, I've got this blue cup, which has a UPC, but it has a serial number with it. So it distinguishes there's only this cup that is a unique identifier across the, that is incredible to think about. And yes, we did it for RFID. We're going to now talk a little bit about, well, what are the other uses of that? Because one of the things that we wanted to talk about is this concept of Sunrise 2027. Okay. And sometimes people, <laughs> I get a laugh because sometimes people would announce this as sunset 2027. We're sunsetting the UPC. That's in fact not the case, right? It's Thank still going to be, that's yeah, still going to be alive and well out there. It's going to give people another opportunity. So talk to us a little bit about what Sunrise 2027 was all about. Sure. And I'll tell you where it came from. Um, I think we had a couple of slides if you wanted to show mm-hmm. them. Um, But Sunrise 2027 is really about responding to the ever-changing needs of the supply chain. And that starts from up, you know, between business and business and business to consumer. And so the consumers, um, the consumers demand for more information about the products that they are purchasing and the ability to get to that information is super important. Um, Can you go back a slide? That was first one. All right, first of all, sorry. Well, let me just say it right here. The consumer's desire to uh, get more information about the products that they buy is one of the drivers as well. The supply chain is super complex with lots of demands on it. We just lived through COVID, right? And mm-hmm. I'm just, I don't know about you, Mike, but I was every night, I'm like, this could be solved if everybody had unique identification and automatic data capture and sharing and all that sort of things. And um so, so really, that is what's happening now. The consumers have more expectations and businesses need more data. And that UPC code that just tells you that's a blue cup, it's, it, it, we need more, right? Where did that blue cup come from? Who manufactured that blue cup? Did it come from a sustainable source, um, et cetera? And, and then moving to things like food and food safety is super important. And there's a lot of requirements and regulations coming down for that. What's the, what was that batch or lot? Was that uh, recalled? Um, uh, all sorts of things like that. Um, there's more and more demands on knowing what's happening with that blue cup. And as such, you can't tell, you can't deliver all of that simply with the UPC barcode alone, especially with um, the mobile phone um, and, and different apps like you can do stuff with the um, with the UPC code with specific applications in your retail store to manage on-shelf availability and all of those things. Um, you can do stuff with uh, UPC barcode in an app, MyFitnessPal or whatnot, but you can't really trust that that data that is backing that scan came from the original source and all of those types of things. So. Moving to a 2D code allows a couple of things. It allows granular identification, whether it be at the batch or the lot level or the serialized level, which like we just talked about, opens up visibility. But it also allows you to to possibly embed data elements that might be important, like an expiration date for perishables, um, possibly a production date, um, and be able to serve that up. Um, the other key thing is in moving to a 2D barcode, we create just like the U- it's the UPC code with some additional data. And what's really key is in a web resolvable format. We have the ability with 2D codes to now put that in a web resolvable format. So there's all sorts of different things that can happen with that. 
So, so let's break down the benefits to a couple of different folks. First off, the customer, the person who's actually buying the product at the store. You recently did a video with John Phillips in GS1. I thought it did a really good job of from a consumer perspective, what the value would be for a 2D barcode. Yeah. Uh, would you like to show that now? I would love to show that now. Thanks for teeing that up. Might be on the next, yeah. Right, it's at the end. Hello, I'm John Phillips. I'm a senior vice president of customer supply chain and go-to-market for PepsiCo, representing loved brands like Doritos, Lay's, Quaker Oats, Gatorade, and Pepsi, to name a few. We live in an age of, I would say, digital disruption. Virtually every consumer, nine out of 10, carry a smartphone, and that, that tool has enabled an incredible amount of insight into the products they purchase and the products they discover and investigate. And the 2D barcode, which will replace the current UP that's administered by GS1 will enable a whole new set of transformational capabilities under a global standard called the GS1 Digital Link that will enable new capabilities that are not possible with the current UPC barcode that we've had for the last 50 years. The ability to click on a PepsiCo product and get the definition of every single ingredient in a product and why it's in there in that particular formulation. So think about that. Trying to just physically fit that on a package, it would be impossible to go do that. Recently, there was a new allergen added to the U.S. allergen list, something called sesame. And if you think about that, once it's identified, it's 18 to 24 months before consumer product companies refresh packages and can get that text on the package. Think of a digital world where if I had a digital activation on every package and it's been ratified in the legislation, the ink is dry on it, I can instantly provide that information to the consumer digitally. All of that is now possible with a single 2D barcode on a package enabled by the global industry standards from GS1 that actually create the GS1 digital link. The amount of information that consumers is seeking is expanding, it's not contracting. If you're not yet engaged uh, in this conversation, the time is now. That's a great video, Gene. I love I love that. You guys did a really good job of kind of laying that out. You, you got a pretty good leader in John to explain the benefits from the consumer perspective. Uh, yeah, that's you know, for sure. I like to take him everywhere I go, but since I can't, I take his video. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so that's the benefit for the customer. They, they get information which is much deeper than just a UPC, uh, some of the examples he gave. But there's also things like if there's a product recall, today we pull everything off the shelf because we just don't know, but it could have been just a specific lot number of, of, of group of products that came from one plant that need to be recalled. This could save the industry a lot of money. So the freshness for the consumer, but let's talk a little bit about the retailers. What are some of the benefits that you see of this move to a 2D barcode for the retail community? Um, yeah, great question. Um, it, similarly, like it all boils down to now I'm tracking, I'm able to have, have an identification at the product level with an expiration date and possibly other things that allow me to do uh, freshness management. Super important um, to do that. If you think about deli day, uh, bakery, um, dairy, deli bakery, sorry, I never say that right. Um, I can do that. Um, and that can be with different technologies. And I want to, I want to stress that we're not picking one out of the other. I don't think it's an either or. I often think it's an and. Um, and so having that ability to be able to sense and see and scan and get 
oh, this is that batch lot and have a red light saying, don't let that cross point of sale. That's a recalled product or even do dynamic markdowns. If we think about, um, if we think about that, just that lower level of granularity and uh, the ability to serve that up is useful. Additionally, I would say for retail, uh, for, for anyone implementing this, um, that scan and we are all trained now. I, and I'm, like I said, I've been around since punch cards, but, uh, <laughs> uh that scan, um, which remember before the pandemic, my QR codes were supposed to be dead, right? Yeah. And I, I recall, because I've been around this for a while, and they're like, Gen Z's never going to scan a 2D uh, QR code. Stop talking about it. So we did. And um, and so then the pandemic comes and the QR codes like opened up to everybody and their mother and their mother's mother. And so it really kind of, it had a renaissance, um, so to speak. But so now for the businesses, for the brands, you got a consumer scanning that thing. You can get a lot of intelligence on what's happening with your product. Same thing for the retailers who this doesn't this doesn't uh, disintermediate the retailers and the value of their app, but it allows you to serve and personalize that experience within your app because, uh, based on the products that the the uh, consumer is interacting with. Yep. So you mentioned something really important, and I've got a question uh, regarding the the point of sale activation of this. Yeah. You mentioned this, the beginning of this, this serialized data became was because of RFID, because I got to be able to scan unique items. Yeah. Let's be really clear. The RFID, the RF and RFID is the radio frequency. That's how you capture the data. The mm -hmm. ID portion in RFID can be represented in electronic tag, or it can be represented by this 2D barcode. That's absolutely that's I, don't, I don't have to have an RFID system to take advantage of the serialized data in this product, correct? That is correct. And I will also add, Mike, you don't have to serialize product to get benefits from moving to 2D barcodes. Mm -hmm. And indeed, um, what we talk about and how we're initially rolling at this out is um, for, for now, depending on the um, product type and the product characteristics, it might not make sense to try to serialize a can yeah. of Pepsi, for example, yeah. which is a great point because it really depends on the product characteristics and the line and what, what it means to manufacture that product. Pepsi yeah. is super fast line speeds and um, serialized barcodes are a unique barcode. And every time you change that serial number, it's not yeah. practical and it's not practical in today's uh, for today, right? Um, line the the line speeds are too fast. Now there are printing capabilities that enable that, but there's a period of time where we have to get to that point. So I want to be make sure we're very clear. This rollout to 2D barcodes doesn't mean everything's going to be serialized. In fact, not at all. Um, right. It does provide you that ability, and in some pre in some categories like apparel, where they're already RFID tagging, it 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 just opens that wide open. But in center store, maybe just the G10 and having that in a web resolvable way or the um, the label variant is what I, what is important to me where I can get some use on that perimeter of a superstore where you've got perishable goods. I can now put in that lot in that batch. And so there's really a roadmap forward. And so there's no one size here. It, it depends. Um, and so I, I want to make sure that we're clear on that. Yeah, so so I've got a question from Ron that I think is a really good one that I want to ask you, and, and I'm not asking you to represent hardware suppliers in any way, shape, or form, but his question is a really good one. What percentage of the deployed scanner or set scales can handle a 2D barcode 
huge expense to replace those? Great question. It's a great question. Yeah, well, we started this initiative with uh, with uh, research on that um, back in 2017 or 18. Um, and really, so the, the number one requirement for reading a 2D code is it's got to be an optical scanner. Yep. So the amount, so our research returned back then that it was 87% of the install base were, were optical. Um, and then it's likely increased since then. We're about to commission a new study, but I think the number was upwards of that by 2027. Um, and so optical for, for this initiative to be able to read a 2D code at point of sale, extract the G10. That's all you can, that's all the requirement for 2027 is right now is extract that UPC or that G10 and go beep like it does today. Um, all that, what is required for that is a firmware upgrade to and up to the optical uh, scanners that are installed. And we've worked with the top three um, scanner manufacturers in the U.S. And there's a lot happening um, globally. Uh, China is like way off to the races, mostly for regulation on this. But there's a lot of work in Europe um, as well um, with that capability. We've worked with our technology providers here in the U.S. Um, to develop the code necessary to do a couple things because we didn't want to break. And it's such a great question, John, uh, Ron, because we can't break point of sale. Great right. that you have this barcode that could do everything. Um, so we work with those scanner manufacturers to do, do some code work to ensure a couple things. I can read this thing fast, 40 to 70 items per minute, I think is the, uh, is the standard for the current UPC code. And I can read, uh, a URL link and I could get what I need and I can go beep at the same speeds I can do it from a UPC code today. That's number one. And then the second thing that we did was we wanted to ensure in the in the transitional period or in the case where there's a UPC and a 2D barcode with the same data, it reads that, but it knows which one to read. It, prior, it, it only goes beep once because you don't want to leave the customer being charged twice, of course. Correct. Yeah, so that's we, uh, not it's a firmware upgrade. <laughs> it's a firmware upgrade. That um, are, are that are being rolled out, and um, there are some legacy uh, scanners out there that we still have to work on getting and ensuring that that firmware upgrade is there. But we anticipate all of the major scanner manufacturers being able to push that within the next um, six to twelve months, if not sooner. I don't want to speak for them, but it, it's on the roadmap for well before twenty twenty seven. We're doing active pilots with those folks today, um, so it's there. And so, so just to follow up on Ron's comment, he he added back changing the configuration to extract the G10 is fairly trivial as long as the scanner can scan it. It sounds like for the most of the majority of the optical readers, we should have no issues with that at all. So that's correct. Okay. And, and 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 I want to just one more point because we have talked about the batch and the lot number and the expiry date, and that's really where you can unpack some value. Um, our testing also included scanning and extracting those different data elements. There are application identifiers that say you're about to read the G10, you're about to read the expiration date, you're about to read the lot number. So the scanner is able to pull that out and then serve that up to the host system. And then the host, it, and it can still do that at speed. What the host system does behind the scenes is kind of up to the retailer, but we are working with um, uh, the, the major manufacturers there as well. If you're doing stack data bars for fresh food today you already do that so um just want to make sure it's not just the g10 it's some of those other data elements as well yep perfect so there's two more that i can think of right off the top there's a whole bunch of benefits for this but 
One of them that I've heard from the industry is specially re- related to food and food okay. safety and markdown of food. Think about a world where you literally put an RFID tag or a 2D barcode or both the same okay. and put it on the product. That, by the way, they have to match. <laughs> the, yes. With the data <laughs> in the RFID tag has to match the 2D barcode or we're going to have all kinds of challenges. But you can actually encode in that not only the UPC G10, but the serial number and a potential date for like people who are making product in a store like cookies and candy, it's whatever. You can go, hey, it was manufactured on this date. So by the way, four days from now or three days from now, whatever, you don't have to go pick up every package and look at it. You can actually use RFID to find those one or two that need to be marked down for a quick sale. That's a huge labor savings for retailers, right? Absolutely. And the, and what you uh, picked up on there is if you replicate that in a 2D barcode, you can get some consumer engagement there. The consumer can can scan a 2D code now and see what's up with that product. But additionally, because, um, and Mike, we can debate this on when all checkout stands might have RFID readers tied to their POS system, but we don't have that today. Uh, and it, you, those things are out there, but it's not an install base that we have today. When you when you can replicate what's in an RFID tag with a 2D barcode, you can now check out with that 2D barcode um, and make make sense of that. So you've got this rich set of data um, that you can tie to your sales data and do a number of things like that. Gina, we've been working together too long. You're starting to finish my sentence as we go. <laughs> that is that is the second use case for those. Yeah, yeah I, I recently had uh, Joe Cole on from Macy's. Macy's is a classic, and they are so far ahead of everybody else of leveraging specifically RFID data, but the ID, the serialized data in that to say, what left the store that didn't get paid for? Well, the problem is at point of sale today, I'm rigging up that old UPC that I'm comparing it to the serialized data that left. So three got sold, five left. Which two left that didn't get sold? I don't know. But what you're saying in the future is I don't have to have an RFID reader at point of sale. That's probably going to disappoint people like Zebra, et cetera, because they'd love to sell more point of sale readers at sale. But the bottom line is the scanner could collect that serialized data. Then I know exactly what item left the store. What two of those items left the store that didn't get paid for? Because I'm actually capturing that data at point of sale. I think that's a powerful asset protection use case where I'm literally scanning the unique serial number of that item, comparing it to what left the actual store. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's another one and Dillard's, um, Dillard speaks with us a lot on this and they were um, not, not as uh, quick to adopt RFID as Macy's, of course. Um, But, but our um, jumping on 2D for that, that use case, Mike, but also returns fraud. And, and a number of different retailers have, as you know, you go into a buy, buy a pair of shoes and they scan the UPC code, then they scan a sticker and then they put that sticker on there. Mm-hmm. And so when you try to return it, they, they scan the sticker. Well, once you have serialized identification at point of sale, it takes that whole process out of the, out of the equation. So, so walk through that. So I've got a sale of, let's go back to my blue cups. I got five of these blue cups, three of them, the unique serial number left the store. Two of them left the store, but never went through a register. That's right. Two days later, that two of those come in and try and get returned to the returns counter. 
whatever the messaging to the customer is is a different topic but the retailer goes those never got paid for that's correct so if you can't produce for me your receipt correct then guess what i cannot return that product for you right that's it. or worse yet we happen to know that that didn't go through a register and left the store now you're trying to get money you yeah. have two options a you can leave my merchandise with me or b <laughs> you can call the police one or the other i just for fun yeah. For fun. Well, I mean, listen, that's a real issue right now. Um, it's it's, uh, retail, um, what, what I, it, the word escapes me, but retail, organized retail crime. ORC. Organized retail crime is a big issue, and then it's coming mm. back and it's coming back for the cash. And so, if you can tie that to an instance of a product and know if it was sold, it'd be great. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So, let's kind of keep moving here. Lots of really cool stuff that this is possible. Um, so, GS1 is now delivered and is sharing information about Sunrise 2027. Before we talk about the specific, uh, what exactly has to happen industry-wide to allow this to happen? That seems like a big change. The standards are out there ahead of everybody else, which is great. What exactly involved? What do the suppliers have to do? What do the retailers have to do? What do the solution providers have to do? Great. That's a great question. Um, so sticking with the suppliers and where we're going, like they, we, there, John Phillips said it best, and there are other other brands and suppliers that are saying it as well with him. Um, there are benefits to more data and being able to link to um, additional information about that product, right? All of these yep. use cases made possible by 2D. Yep. Um, Having said that, there's not a mandate for every supplier to move to a 2D barcode. They could keep that UPC only on there if they want to. They're missing out on some value. Mm -hmm. um, but I just want to be clear about that. Um, and the, and then the suppliers um, are, uh, they can move to and migrate to 2D at whatever speed they want. They can have co-located barcodes and then drop the 1D. The 1D barcode, the 2027 date is intended to say, all retailers should have the capability to read a 2G barcode in the instance that that's the only thing on there. That's our sunrise date. Yep. We know there will still be a transition because not everybody's got those optical scanners. Not everybody's got those firmware. So we anticipate a transition period. Um, but that's really kind of relationship uh, dependent as well. Um, so that's um, that's for the suppliers. On the retail side, it really is working with for scanner manufacturers and ensuring that they've got the right firmware upgrade and that their scanners can take that firmware upgrade. And there's some older ones, but most of them, as long as they're optical, will be able to do that um, and uh, and go be and only take the G10. So it's really a matter of working with their scanner manufacturers. Um, again, for the technology providers, we have been working with those scanner manufacturers. And then next up, it's work with the work with your um your your host system to do all of the cool things that you want to do that are made possible with this additional data you can get from the barcode. Gotcha. So when I started this out, I heard confusion over sunrise 2027 and sunset 2027. We are not sunsetting the 1D barcode in 2027. We are enabling the 2D barcode. So it's a sunrise 2027. That's how I remember it. That's right. One, one question I got from somebody, which is, okay, over this 2D barcode, that looks like a QR code. What's the difference between a 2D barcode and a QR code? It's not. A QR code is one form of a, of a two-dimensional barcode. Um, the other form that you see to the right there is a data matrix code. 
And you can see just a slight nuance and it's got a tiny little uh, fraction of a smaller footprint there. Um, you can put a GS1 digital link into either of these, Mike. Um, the difference is, uh, and, and, and the difference, the main difference is on the QR code can be read by any mobile device, any mobile phone. Uh, the data matrix can only be read by Android devices. Gotcha. Um, that data matrix though comes in super handy. Um, and there's another syntax that you can put into that data matrix, which is, uh, a, uh, we call it GS1 element string. So it's just a bunch of numbers and that also compresses the size of it. And that is useful for things and, and regulatory driven things like pharmaceuticals. Um, and so, and the, in the pharmaceutical world, it is, it, the, um, Regulation is that you have to serialize your product and you have to use a 2D um, data carrier and it should be a GS1 element string. So we make a lot, we, we um, ensure that those are part of our 2D conversation, but you really got to go, what use case am I trying to solve for to know which barcode to use? If there's a regulatory requirement, pick the one that, that's there. <laughs> um, if you're really uh, trying to enable a number of things, QR code is really um, the one that's most accessible both to the consumer and the business. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so we had a question, set, and I think we've already answered this. Can you throw more light on how a 2D barcode, RFID, and serialization can all work collectively? I think yeah. I think we answered that one, but take one more shot at it just to make sure. Or you can, Mike. I mean, you're, we can answer each other's sentences, but uh, <laughs> um, really what the RFID, it, it allows for um, non-light-of-sight inventory capture. It requires serialization, so you've got a serialized GTIN in that instance. And really what you're doing with the 2D code is replicating that data, that serialized G10 in a 2D code, but now um, allowing for consumer interaction with that because I can read that with my mobile phone. Um, and additionally, um, I can extract the G10 from that at point of sale and, and serve that use case. And then I can, if, if, if it's appropriate, again, I can do some um, inventory management on shelf availability um, as well so um that's that's really the it's the difference between the two is really the capability of the technologies but it's really getting to being able to identify something in a serialized level yeah so so 2d barcode or an rfid tag can have a g10 which is a upc in essence a serialized which makes it unique across the industry and then other data attributes right those are all defined by GS1. That data can be encoded in an RFID tag. It can also be represented in a 2D barcode. The only thing I would say is whatever you do, make sure the data that's in the RFID tag encoded by the reader of the RFID tag in that tag matches what's actually on the package. Because otherwise, right. the systems will be, well, this one cup is really two cups, and it's really, really not. That's true. So here's a big question. Eric's got a question. I think, you, and this is really definitely a question for you because I have I don't know the answer to this. I, I see the question. All right. Well, <laughs> you said you wouldn't stump me. <laughs> well, maybe I'm going to stump you. And that's okay because I don't know the answer to this question. What? And you can say you can call the fifth and say I don't know. What's the latest on the adoption of differences and convergence of UNSPSC? Not even sure what that is, and the GS1 GPC. Which would have the greatest impact on on-shelf availability, and how do you see generative AI impacting product classification codes and tariffs? If this is on the final exam, 
Gina, I'm flunking the class, just so you know. <laughs> um, I got to think about that second part as far as product classification and AI um, are concerned. But I would say this, that um, UNSPSC is actually, it's a, um, a, a classification system that we manage in the in the U.S. and um, our healthcare industry uh, at GS1 U.S., our healthcare industry leverages it for a different set, a completely different set of use cases in payments and other types of things. Um, uh, our global product classification system is, is how we um, classify products for the purposes of um, master data sharing and whatnot. So he, Eric's right. There is it, this question. I have this question. Would it, why are these two things different and why aren't they converging? Um, that all sits within my team. So um, for more to come on that, uh, I do think product classification and product master data um, is it is kind of uh, as well as things become more uh, prolific and, and digitization and all of that. There's we got these cool uh, technologies, Mike, for uh, barcodes and RFID and sensing and stuff. But when you really want to serve up stuff, uh, information to consumers, that master data better be good. Mm-hmm. And product classification becomes super important in that regard. And so uh, uh, that is another um, strong focus that we'll be having. I can't answer this question specifically yeah. on when all these things will happen, but they're good questions, Eric. <laughs> His response, LOL. <laughs> he's, he's really proud of the fact that he stumped, uh, stumped the panel, both him and I. I didn't understand. He didn't stump me, but I have some of the same questions. I didn't know. <laughs> um, I tell you another, I tell you another one. The the unique serial number also plays out. We never talk about this very much, but it's the whole concept of product authentication. What does that mean? Okay. Well, if I'm Nike. And I spent all that money on that marketing swoosh, right? I don't want somebody making a pair of shoes with putting a Nike swoosh on it and selling it for half of what I should be selling it for. That destroys the credibility of my brand. So in the future, if Nike actually uses a unique serial number using RFID or 2BR code, they can tell retailers these are unique barcode serial number combinations, SG10s, if you will that are legitimate Nike products. If you have other Nike products in your system that doesn't have that, they're not true. Same with pharmaceuticals, right? I can promise you that this pharmaceutical item, I know John Worthen from, uh, he's got his own company now looking at the pharmaceutical industry. This is a huge opportunity to make sure that the pharmacy is actually delivering product customers that that came from the manufacturers. Any other idea, any other concepts that 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 would be helpful, examples that that would be? No, I mean, th- th- those are all great examples. And we talked forever, like since the dawn of RFID technology. Well, wow, you're at the serialized level that could prevent counterfeiting. Yeah. Um, and uh, I went down this road a few years ago and um, discovered blockchain as 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 a tool in the toolbox for any counterfeiting. Sure. Um, it's so serialization and, and potentially that there are other technologies that allow you to um kind of cryptographically secure and share in a decentralized way whether or not this number is authentic that we are exploring as part of our innovation arm um, as because people can get more and more the 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 more sophisticated the technology the more sophisticated the folks get it just keeps evolving right um on on how to how to um help solve for some of those things but serialization is a first step for sure yep 
Well, and to do a shameless plug, we don't have time to go into this now, but one of the things that people have said, well, I'm going from a UPC 12345 and I've got a thousand of them to I now have a thousand individual records for each one of those. That's a massive amount of data. How do you do that? And you guys have developed a platform called EPCIS, which is a standard in place to allow that to be shared amongst trading partners. Um, where can people go to get more information on that? Because I think it's a powerful set of tools that was developed years ago that people are just now saying, boy, that would really be helpful if we knew more about it. Gina, you're the person? Yeah. All right. Yeah, I uh, I was the facilitator of the development of of that standard with one of my dearest friends who's not here um, here with us anymore, Ken Traub, Um, And it was 2007, Mike. Wow. And so I always tell the story that it's a good thing that my job doesn't, you know, that I personally don't require instant gratification in my job for fielding any value because it never comes. But uh, yeah, EPCIS is um, a standard. It's an interface standard, really, that allows you to capture and share event data is how we describe it. The what, where, when, why, who yeah. of, of a movement in the supply chain that allows you to capture and share that. Um, and you can put that in any place. You can use that internally within your own organization, but then the point of it was to be able to you, Mike, at whatever Mike's grocery store to be able to get uh, information from me, Gina, manufacturer, and you have an SAP system and I have an IBM system, but we're still sharing that event information because it's implemented uh, based on EPCIS. But Gina, I thought that's what EDI was for. The great great point. Um, <laughs> EDI, EDI, we categorize EDI as those real transactional um, yep. type of things. And listen, an ASN is an advanced shipping notice. Uh, EPCIS has a shipping event. So why aren't those the same? I mean, uh, but EDI is kind of a push, right? It's not this query response type yeah. of thing. And the, and EDI also doesn't have the ability to capture trans things like transformation events and a slew of other different types of events that um, since the advent of EDI, which is also not implemented um, across uh, every place, uh, EPCIS yeah. is either, but still you could skip past some of these. This is some of the details of the different uh, 2D codes that we can just uh, share with the audience afterwards. But anyway, um, so, <laughs> so, so, the, so this, this slide I put up there because people were asking uh, online, okay. which is the difference. So this is a UPC kind of playing UPC. This is the GS1 element string with the attribute data. And this is the GS1 digital link. So we'll make these slides available as part of the podcast, but I think that's important for people to kind of understand. Gina, is there anything else that, that we're missing? Um, what questions have I not asked you that I should have? That's one of my favorite questions, which is, I wish he would have asked me this question because I got the great answer for it. What do you want people to know that I haven't asked you already? Uh, I, I, the time is now. Um, when should people get started now? What do they just get started doing? Um, I would say moving to 2D takes a strategy on on uh, with pack with a number of different parts of your organization, packaging, marketing, um, but also supply chain. Um, at, on the retail side, listen, sometimes I get this question, Mike, well, what's in it for me? I'm a retailer and I, my POS system works today. Why do I want to do this yep. firmware upgrade and that sort of thing? But a lot of retailers are also brands. If they've got private label, they can they can benefit from all of the benefits the supplier has with their brands. But but also um, 
there are things that that retailer can get um, within their applications and whatnot. We just need to ensure that that doesn't slow down or break what happens at point of sale. And then I think I've mentioned some of those advanced use cases on expiry management, recall management, um, and and not ensuring that sort of thing uh, to the consumer. Um, so I would just say to, to start to get uh, the thought around that, and we are actively working with retailers and suppliers on validating our our uh, learnings from the University of Memphis lab who uh, tested with us in real world environments. And we shamelessly solicit folks who would like to get involved in these sort of pilot activity to validate those findings. But listen, we've done it a few times. We know that this will work. And so now it's about planning how do we all get to 2027. Awesome. Well, to me, 2020, I'm being smart, Alec, for a minute. Twenty, It's not even 2024 yet. We got plenty of time for that, Gina. Don't we have plenty of time? Why, why, what's what's the reason we have to get involved with this? 2027 is next week, Mike. Come on. <laughs> this is Y2K all over again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, didn't, exactly. you didn't start like a, the week before Y2K, right? <laughs> And really, to be honest with you, um, I, I I have confidence that we'll see some folks ready and able to um, scan 2D barcodes at point of sale well before 2027. My my goal is to have um, someone there before uh, to celebrate our 50th anniversary of the first scan in the UPC. But that takes industry. And so we've got to continue to sell the value and educate. And I appreciate the opportunity to do that today. Absolutely. My, my only push for the industry is this is not something that you want to wait. Number one, the first is education, which you're which you're actually getting. The question is, do you want to implement this to being compliant with a new industry standard or do you want to be the first or one of the first to take advantage of that new capability to drive your business and your customer satisfaction? I'd want to be the second group. I want to be I want to take advantage of it. I don't want to just do it because I have to do it. I'm asked to do it. It's a compliance thing. This has a real breakthrough. The the day where we have unique serialized SGTONs on every product will be breakthrough in terms of where we are. It, it'll be as big a breakthrough as moving from the old price sticker to a UPC where you scan it. This has that kind of capability uh, and, and potential breakthrough in it. So, Gina, thank you so much. Extremely helpful. Really do appreciate it. We'll have to have you back to talk a little bit more about EPCIS because I think that's another well 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 worth the time people's time to really understand that i think yeah. it's still out there well that's edi i don't need that but i think that's another taking advantage of the serialized data leveraging something like pcs has been really really great i've i've enjoyed working with you over the years you've done a great job today explaining to our audience and i really do appreciate it well so. thanks for having me it's the best part of my day it was really fun mike thanks <laughs> all right take care everybody bye